boys and ghouls, and welcome to Movie Mindset's Horror Spectacular for this month of October, or Horror-tober, brought to you by Ghoul V Scream Set, which is what this program will be referred to for the remainder of this, the spookiest of all months, where we are going to bring you five episodes of blood-curdling, spine-chilling, horror, gore, and most importantly, ghouls. There will be plenty of ghouls this month. Hessa, welcome back to Movie Mindset, and welcome to the Halloween, the spooky season. Boo to you, and boo to the listeners as well, and I'm excited to dive in and talk about the things that go bump in the night and the spooky scaries in the world. Uh, and, and just to be clear, you were saying boo to the listeners as a sort of like boo to frighten them, not boo to the listeners. Yes, 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 Je- yes, yes Jeers yes. to them for the dumb I'm things I'm trying to scare are. them. I'm yeah. trying to scare okay. them. <laughs> <laughs> well, to kick things off today, we have selected uh, two horror movies for you that I, I regard as sort of the pinnacle of the genre in terms of what a the modern the modern horror genre is capable of movie two movies that assault not just your psyche but in my opinion the very concept of language meaning and art altogether but before we get into our two films for today i want to ask hessa what's your favorite thing about the horror genre what does the horror genre hit for you and what does it mean to you it's just so spooky. I mean, I like. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just so spooky. I'm so scared of it. I think like the whole reason I became into films is because my dad would show me like all like the VHS that he had for Halloween and be like, "This movie's more messed up than your like dumb six year old brain can probably even imagine." And I was like, "Does a baby get cut in half with a chainsaw?" And there's a long pause, and he was like, it's actually much worse than that. And I was like, what the fuck? What could be worse than that? There's nothing worse than a baby getting cut in half with a chainsaw. But he couldn't back Halloween. down. But he couldn't back yeah. down. <laughs> well, unlike you, I had I had parents that were um, very sensitive to what they called gratuitous violence, and would not let me see um, the movies with you know that that level of depravity and horror. And I would always just be sort of um, I would always be spooked by the horror movies, and I'd be walking around the uh, like the video store, and I would like test myself by walking down the horror aisle and looking at all the amazing uh, VHS box art for like. Oh, you yeah. Like you know, like like uh, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, where like the woman's mouth is being opened up with the skull yeah. inside. The Silence of the Lambs. John Frankenheimer's Prophecy. Oh, the Silence of yeah. the Lambs one. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, like you know, like as I desensitized myself to violence and grotesquerie of all kinds, as I as I got older, uh, to me horror movies are great because they they represent like like the the possibilities of cinema to like get people to feel things. And to like to pull off the, like a perfectly executed scare, or even better, to pull off a movie that really gets under your skin and frightens you after you see it, to me is like all, all that. Like that's movie magic. Like it's like how how do you how do you, how do you how do you use like the the art and techniques of film to like really pack a punch to really hurt your audience 
or in many cases, make them laugh. Because like the older I get, the less frightened I am by horror movies and the more I find horror movies hilarious. Like, Because to me, pulling off a good scare and pulling off a good joke in a movie is just about timing. Yeah. And like it, it like it, like to like um, to elicit um, an involuntary response from me and the viewer is like whether it is like an extreme fright or an extreme laugh. Like I find myself laughing. Like maybe it's out of nervousness, but like to me, the the two movies we're going to talk about today are, in my opinion, both genuinely upsetting and frightening, but also in a very sixth sense, very funny. Yeah, absolutely. So without further ado, let's let's begin. Let, let, let's talk about like the two movies we've chosen. And you know, season one of Movie Mindset, we got a lot of comments that you know, why are you choosing all these obscure movies that I haven't seen? Well, <laughs> listener, uh, you will be disciplined for that. But we thought we thought we'd start you off easy uh, for for horror tober Goulvie screams uh, to choose two of the most well known horror movies of all time. I'm talking, of course, about 1968's Night of the Living Dead by George Romero and 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Toby Hooper. Yes. So I said I said that both these movies I think I think they make they, they inform each other very well because I think like uh, George Romero really he cracked open the door and walked so Texas Chainsaw Massacre could really run and they're only separated by about six six seven years that's crazy but, to me I, yeah. when I realized that watching them I was like what the fuck that's insane night of the living dead the dead who live on living flesh the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. Our adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night. Of the Living Dead. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Night of the Living Dead first because it comes, you know, uh, first chronologically. But, like, mm -hmm. what was so fascinating to me about, like, and I've seen this movie so many times now, but what was fascinating to me watching it this time was how much it feels of a different era, like kind of like uh, like the serialized entertainments of the 1950s, while uh, while introducing like genuinely nihilistic horror and gore and like and creating a really other world with a really totally sparse budget and really what seems like a student film, creating a really uh, like otherworldly and unpleasant vision that like that really was totally groundbreaking considering the time it was it was made in. Yeah, this movie is like really fucked up and it's like crazy because when you think of like old black and white like when you think of black and white horror movies you think of like 50s like yeah or universal, 30s universal yeah. yeah or you know 50s sci-fi movies and it's very jarring to see like a 50s movie where like 
like a daughter eats her father's hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> eats her dying father's arm off. And it's it's really and then gets has to get domed by uh by a guy with a lever action rifle. <laughs> it's it's really like kind of crazy. And it's like didn't they invent the rating system because of this movie? Or is that something that... Is that just, like, apocryphal? I mean, they might have. I mean, like, it, it, from a certain light, you watch, you watch Night of the Living Dead, and it does seem very dated in certain contexts. However, if you pay close attention, the level of gore that they put in this movie, and not just, like... And the gore really only lands because of what it portrays is this, like purely American nightmare of, like, of total social apocalypse and, like, the upending of, like, every conceivable social taboo the movie is like has heavy themes of incest in addition to cannibalism and then we will talk about of course like the very ever-present racial dynamic that's uh yeah. in a very at play in a very interesting way in night of the living dead the true horror of this movie is that white people are useless they're not good for anything <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and to me like uh you know th- th- this was like th- there had been zombie movies made before night of the living dead but they were like zombie in the kind of like uh caribbean voodoo context like I uh, yeah. was it um uh, years I walked with a zombie yeah and like you know the in, in that context the zombie was very much about voodoo ritual and kind of like but but still you know like a, a obvious metaphor for like the legacy of slavery in the West Indies and Caribbean mm-hmm. but the Romero Night of Living Dead like this is the first modern zombie movie that establishes all of like the modern rules of like how a zombie apocalypse unfolds and the zombie genre is just so played out now. Like yeah. it's just it, it, I'm, I have no interest in anything zombie anymore. But like these, the original Romero movies, like, and I mean, obviously, I don't think they can be judged by like how much bad imitation they've spawned. But like, uh, r- truly groundbreaking in that, like, it is a source of horror that is like not ever really fully explained. But it's not ever really like it's not it's not supernatural. This is like non gothic horror. It's a it's yeah. a replacement of the kind of the Dracula or the mummy or these where horror could be embodied in sort of like a vaguely foreign other figure. Whereas in this, the horror is just America eating itself alive, and like yeah. it's just normal looking people. I completely forgot. I've seen this movie so many times and I always forget that there's a part where they say like, oh, um, it's actually, the zombies are actually coming back to life because of radiation from a space probe. Yeah. It's like, what? Well, I mean, like, you know, you can read that as like, that's an explanation that they're giving on the TV. But like, to me, like my reading of the movie is that it doesn't, it's not, it's not explicitly stated that that's the reason why. I think that's just like their best explanation for what could be going on. Yeah, and it's it, we'll talk about it, but like the world of what's going on in the TV versus I what's going on in the movie is so disconnected and so like separate, and it's so like crazy. And I think like that's like uh, and like you know obviously like the radio has been used to great effect. Like for instance in the. Uh, the, the thing from another world, the, the Howard Hawks produced version of that, you know, like yes. the radio is used to great effect in that. But like in this, like, I, I, like that, that juxtaposition between the world of the media and then this like this keyhole glimpse of the apocalypse. And I, that, that's a concept that I love so much in movies or fiction is, is like not, not, not narratives about the end of the world. And this is certainly about the end of the world, but ones that just like give you just a very limited individual's perspective on like the entire world ending. And you never yeah. really know what's going on outside of this very limited scope, save for the intervention of things like radio and television. And I think that's like a very, a very modern um, like, or postmodern uh, like technique that Romero uses to great effect in Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, absolutely. 
And like, for instance, when the movie opens, you know, like, and, and honestly, both of these movies could be accurately summed up with um, a nice country drive ruined. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is what both of these movies are about. But, you know, it's a nice country drive in Western Pennsylvania to visit a graveyard. Also, both movies begin in a graveyard. Yeah. The dead are speaking to us in, in both of these films. And what do they have to say? I don't know. We'll figure it out. They're, they're, they're sick of being dead. <laughs> but you notice like in the beginning with uh, uh, Barbara and Johnny, the brother and sister who are, you know, they've taken a three hour drive out into the sticks to visit their father's grave. And like the brother is very annoyed and he's kind of a creep. But you know what? I sympathize with the Johnny character because I wouldn't want to spend a six hour round trip to visit a grave. And that's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. But you notice, like, when they arrive in the cemetery, um, as they're getting out of the car, like, the radio is still on in the car, and they're like, we're just coming back on air now. Like, a report's coming in, and the brother just turns off the radio before it. But, like, so it's like, from the first frame of the movie, the world is already over. Yeah. Like, the world has already ended. They just don't know it yet. Yeah, I just, I love that feeling of, and same with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has, like, the John Larroquette red monologue about, like, this is a true story of a woman, it's just a, a woman and her invalid brother. They are dead. Like, everything <laughs> you're about to see is true. But just the, this, the, the palpable sense of just doom that sort of stifles every moment and every frame of this movie. Yeah, it's, it's... It's bleak. It's really bleak. But what do you make of the relation? Like we, we only see a little bit of it, and it's the like the first the characters you're introduced to in this movie. But what do we make of the relationship between Barbara and Johnny? Like the the, the most famous line from Night of the Living Dead is they're, they're coming, coming for you, Barbara. You. <laughs> they're coming for you, Barbara. <laughs> there's look, there's one of them now. But like, <laughs> uh, do do you read the same like sort of overtones of incest in this relationship that I do? Like, yeah, absolutely. Like the, the older brother is like slightly sadistic and like. He he likes he likes winding up his sister, but there's this uh, like Mason I don't know, Verger type almost. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he yeah he's definitely a weird. There's something off about him. There's something not quite right. His pocket protector and his driving gloves that he puts on after he stops driving. It's <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> Another thing I, I love about Night of the Living Dead is just how like totally unHollywood it is. Because like this is all everyone involved in this movie was from Pittsburgh. Everyone. Yeah, like the money, the director, <laughs> the actors, like at every level, this just like, you know, from the look of it, like it's an astonishing achievement for like how effective and how, how tight everything is within the confines of the budget, but just how like sparse, but so brutally and perfectly effective, like everything in this movie is from like the plot, uh, just how simple everything is from like the plot to the, the, the gore effects to just like the, the, the brutal simplicity of the concept of just being in a empty farmhouse that's besieged by ghouls. Yeah, and I don't. Th they never even say zombie. They nope. They, they do call just them say, ghouls. They call them ghouls and ghouls. I think we need to go back to ghoul return. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's we a need great to return. It's such a fun word to say. Ghoul. Yeah, it's such, it's a hilarious word. <laughs> ghouls. So, like from the very beginning, like uh, the brother is annoyed that they're going to pay respects to their dead father. There's these like strange intimations of intensity and sadism in their relationship. But I think the important thing to me is that, like, beginning in the graveyard, and then they're kind of like the brother and sister, but mostly the brother is like kind of disrespect for the dead. And, yeah. you know, he keeps like when she goes to pray, she's like, he's like, come on, Barbara. Like, you know, church was yesterday or something like that. Like he's like, you yeah, know, outsides for walking, not for praying. <laughs> 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 
Uh, but you know, like I said, this and in a movie that is about you know uh, uh, the dead rising, <laughs> rising from their graves to cannibalize the living. There are these like minor rehearsals of like, like I said, the upending of social norms, be it like, you know, like the disrespect of the children for the, for a dead parent. And then like the weird sexual overtones in the relationship between Barbara and Johnny. There are these kind of rehearsals of like solid facts or like what we expect from our culture, like just being kind of at first subtly and then violently overthrown. Yeah. And like Barbara is truly, even in the first scene before Johnny gets like killed in front of her they like she is at like fully acting like someone with PTSD oh my god yeah then like it goes into overdrive when she gets into the house and it's literally it it becomes Ben and like well we'll talk about it when we get to the the house but it's an interesting dynamic of the group of survivors. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's it, like an interesting subversion of traditional kind of like uh, narrative architecture and that like Barbara is introduced and like something, you know, traumatic happens to her when like her and her brother are assaulted by the first of many ghouls and she sees her brother. Basically, she runs away from her brother like and doesn't even really know what happens to him, but she she basically leaves him and then she is in a she's in a catatonic state for the rest of the movie yeah like literally. She, she, she never recovers from the horror <laughs> yes. uh, at the very beginning of the movie until she is saved by uh ben played by uh dwayne jones but uh before we get into the house and our our handsome charismatic hero of the film i do want to talk about um the use of sound and score in this movie i find very interesting both because to me what makes a what makes a movie frightening is thirty percent what you're seeing and probably seventy to eighty percent what you're hearing. Yeah, and like you know, if you if you've ever uh, if you ever if you ever frightened watching a movie, just put it on mute and and shock yourself at how not frightening it becomes. Yeah, and and I think the interesting thing about this movie is, like I said, this mix of a soundtrack like an original score that is literally from a different era and a different movie. I just have a little note here that says. The filmmakers couldn't afford original music, so the distinctive score was created from a stock music library. You can also hear some of the same <laughs> tracks in other schlocky sci-fi films of the 50s, including The Hideous Sun Demon and Teenagers from Outer Space. <laughs> it's also in SpongeBob. They use it in oh, SpongeBob. Yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's this music of a different era of like teleports, like the, 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 the ghoul staggers towards Barbara and you hear like, dun, 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 dun. But at the same time, Romero uses these like really violent and jarring sound effects and then cuts them out entirely. The, like when they're outside, there's this horrific buzzing noise of like yeah. cicadas or something. And then like when in the initial ghoul attack, there are these like almost kind of underwater and like the, the scenes where we see the uh, the ghouls uh, chowing down on entrails, there's this almost like bubbling underwater noise. So it's this mix of like old fashioned original score and these really kind of jarring, frightening, uh, sort of very modern industrial kind of sound effects. It's It's like really interesting. There's also like, when like later in the movie like when the mother i forgot her name gets killed by her daughter the scream that she lets out there's this insane like echo effect oh, yeah. on it and it's just like i mean you can see that also mirrored in Texas Chainsaw Massacre with something that happens toward the end of that movie but i'm jumping around too much i guess but but no like Texas Chainsaw Massacre seems 
uh, depraved and otherworldly from like the first frame of the movie, and then you yeah. never have any and any escape from like the stultifying atmosphere of just madness and depravity. Whereas, because like half of Night of the Living Dead seems in another era, it's like it's sometimes almost more disturbing when it crosses those, you know, like when it crosses over into being something totally different than like like a a schlocky sort of genre horror feature. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, uh, Barbara and Johnny are assaulted in the cemetery. Uh, Barbara manages to get away and runs into the uh, abandoned uh, country home, which will basically feature for the rest of the film. She finds a corpse upstairs and is, like, freaked out and runs outside into the headlights of a truck where she is saved by uh, the protagonist of the film, Ben, played by, as I said, uh, Dwayne Jones, who uh, was also starred in Ganja and Hess, which is another... Um, sort of like 70s arty horror movie. Yeah, another amazing movie. From there, uh, it's, it's basically like a one-man show with Ben. And like, I, I love how simple, like just him going around the house and like boarding up the windows and just like, you see how, how influential this was on the Resident Evil games? Because there's, yeah. so there's so much like inventory management and crafting yes. in this movie. This is where it all comes from. Literally every zombie trope, everything just comes straight from this movie. And it's so like crazy to see it like happening. Like uh, Barbara sitting on the couch with her insane weave and being like, um, you know, just staring straight ahead with the thousand yard stare and Ben being like, hey, listen, babe, I know you're real traumatized, but we've really got to get these windows boarded up or else they're going to get in here. <laughs> Prior to um, entering the film, I think he has already figured out that the uh, the ghouls are uh, afraid of and susceptible to fire. So like, you know, he crafts a, a torch out of the legs of one of a table and like a, you know, uh, one of the, some of the drapes. And also like Barbara is just his like NPC escort mission yeah. for the rest of the movie. She is just a <laughs> millstone around his neck. And as we meet like more of the characters of this movie, it's just like Ben is the character. And this is like the funnest part about the zombie genre is that like I, I think it's popular because it's the easiest to imagine yourself in, yeah, and and easiest to imagine yourself in not so like but like facing an opponent that is not just like if you're imagining yourself an alien for instance you just be like well I'd just I'd be dead I'd yeah die. I would like, kill myself just, the second I see no, that alien <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no hope there's yeah. no hope like I wouldn't do anything cool whereas because especially yeah. the, the Romero era zombies are sort of these like shambling slow moving cadavers yeah. you sort of think like. Yeah, like, I could do that. Like, I could get by. Like, I yeah, could spend you know, the night in that house. Like, maybe I couldn't take a zombie, but a I could take, a like, a, a couple dozen ghouls. Not the, not, the tw <laughs> not the 28 Days Later fast-moving yeah, uh, yeah. ghouls. Yeah, I could you take know, like, a ghoul. Be, but, you know, the, the classic, the classic old-style American ghoul, you know, probably overrated to begin with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's that also is reflected on TV when someone, the one guy, um, the newscaster asks oh, yeah, yeah, the, the police the chief, he's like, you know, so if I have, if I'm surrounded by eight or nine of these, am I in trouble? And the guy's like, no, oh, you'll be fine. You know, <laughs> use a gun, <laughs> shoot him, him in the head. head. Shoot him in the head, yeah. If you don't have a gun, use a club, then burn him. You know, you'll be all right. <laughs> like, and like, no, but, but like the Ben character, and like here, here we get into like the, the never meant, the never mentioned, but like brilliantly ever present racial dynamic of the living dead is that the only um, competent person in this entire scenario is Ben. And he's the one black guy in a house full of hysterical white people. Yeah. And he's immediately, he always has to like kind of dominate and cajole into saving their own lives. Yeah, one, like, it's... And every other person in the house is a different type of useless. Like, uh, the least 
useless, I guess, is like probably Tom and Judy who are the trying couple. to help. At yeah. least they're trying, but they they, suck. Bung- they bungle they're the gas so- mission so badly. <laughs> they bungle the gas mission, mission failed spectacularly. <laughs> Critical failure. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like I can't tell you, like you know, the, this this movie meant a lot to me in like high school and college, and like I can't tell you the fun I had about fantasizing about like being in that situation and like making Molotov cocktails with my friends and trying to ward off, you know, a field full of ghouls and yeah. like, you know, would we have what it takes? But I mean, like I think Ben in Night Living Dead, maybe, maybe one of the first black uh, heroes of a movie in, 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 in any, in any, <laughs> in any movie, American movie ever made. I mean, yeah. I know that's probably an exaggeration and Romero claims that it really was a totally blind casting and he just went with the best actor. I mean, it's a little hard to mistake because of just how perfectly it works, especially given the cultural the and ending. political climate and, of 1968 yeah. and the ending of the movie that this was is crazy. The ending is well, the ending. Like that, that's in the movie. Like the movie was distorted disturbing and like horrific for 1968 but the ending of the movie is what truly pushes this into like absolute darker than black nihilism yes <laughs> but i mean just how i mean like whether whether you believe or not that this all was just truly like race blind casting the important part is that the fact that everyone who's watching this movie even today in 2023 is aware of the like rural pennsylvania racial dynamic between ben and these other characters but that like Unlike, for instance, a movie made today, which would make all of that subtext just literally textual, where like yeah. you know Ben would be talking about you know bodies and spaces and shit like that. Yeah. The, the, the fact that it's never mentioned, but like the audience is allowed to feel it totally and feel both like, I guess for the white audience at the time, feel the horror of that situation, i.e., being like having your authority displaced by like a black man who, in a survival situation, you fear would be more competent than you are. Yeah, and the way that Harry looks at him. The whole movie is crazy, and you're just waiting for him to like tr- call him the N word or something, and he just never does. It's never said, but it's like, oh, this guy's racist as hell because he keeps trying to kill Ben for no, for like almost no reason, like except that he's just, I don't even know why he wants to. It's just he's in complete it's him or me mode about every single person in the world, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, eventually they discover the five other people who have been hiding out in this house while, like, you know, about almost half of the movie is played out with just uh, almost like Ben is the only character as he just kind of, like, upgrades materials in the house and, like... Yeah, the pacing is very strange in this movie because, like, again, it's, like, the first movie to ever do this. So it's, like, they really spend, like, most of the movie where it's just Ben, like boarding of windows um but then the the drama when the other characters emerge from the cellar is truly there's the there's the young couple and then there's this family uh, yeah. led by you know father knows worst uh the yeah. character named harry but i think this is you know once again this is romero's kind of like you know not so subtle social commentary about like the nuclear family and sort of uh, for lack of a better term white patriarchal authority in the 1960s yeah in that like it's it's like whether Ben is black is one thing, but it's another thing. It's like it's it's another person who like because the young the young guy uh, basically defers to Harry's authority because he's just a guy who seems like his dad probably. Yeah. And when like and when some sort of like you know horseshoe pattern baldness asshole is just barking orders at you, you just sort of like do, you sort of default to like <laughs> adolescent mode or something. Yeah. 
Whereas, like, the, the the idea that, like, his authority and authority and harebrained ideas would be questioned by anyone, like, because, you know, he's such a tyrant in his own family, but, like, in any kind of real situation, all that goes out the window, and he, like, violently isn't able to handle not being in control, not having yeah. total authority over the people under his roof. And the funny thing is, it's not even his house. Yeah. They're just hiding. They're just hiding out there like everyone else. Yeah. But, you know, but he in Harry's like behavior, house, he acts like it's his house. Yeah. It's crazy. They they find a radio upstairs and it's like the, the first they listen to the radio and then they upgrade to watch the TV. The, the, the life inside this farmhouse is just a series of upgrades, basically. Like it takes a while. Ben crafts a torch and then he finds the uh, you know the uh, repeating uh, rifle in the closet. The uh, you yeah. Know, the, they they keep trying to make plans, but like all of their plans are like you know it's like quest failed, quest failed. They keep failing these side quests before they even begin because they're like, oh, you know, uh, maybe we could go to Beekman's Diner, you know? Uh, and it was like, no, they already took Beekman's Diner. They're just talking about like... It also seems like none of them really know the area very well because they're, they, have, they really don't have a lay of the land. Ben keeps asking them like, how far away are your cars? No one knows except for him because his car's right out there or Tom's car's right out there. But like, yeah, it really is like very hectic, and no one is prepared for this situation. And uh, you mentioned the uh, like we the, the TV and radio broadcasts, and I think they're like they they work so well as a plot device because like they provide you the exposition that the characters are slowly realizing on their own. Like, because you know when the movie starts, it's just one guy attacks this brother and sister in a cemetery. And then, and then, like outside this, and then the, when they're in the farmhouse, when they first get there, there's like you know, there's other people milling around outside, and you know, sort of you know, attacking them in the same way. But they don't know if this is like a localized phenomenon. They don't know what's going on. This could just be like, hey, some people in this western Pennsylvania town have just decided to kill everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, and then finding out, like, when when Ben finds the gun. And they're like trying to come in through the window and he shoots that one ghoul in the chest like two or three times before uh, firing into its forehead. And you see it collapse and there's like a bullet hole in the forehead. But like learning that like you can't like these are not just human beings that these are like learning that you have to like put them down with a headshot or burn the corpse and then learning through the TV that they are eating the like eating the flesh of their victims just bit by bit, where and then and then learning that if you get bit by one, you become one, and that in all cases, everyone who dies will rise from the dead and begin eating the flesh of their victims, is like to establish the rules of this universe through television. I think is a really int- fun and interesting way to advance the plot. Yeah, and it's seeing the characters' reactions too to hearing this information is very. You know, and also the way that they try to like couth this in the trappings of, or like, you know, deliver this information in the trappings of TV when they get the TV on. And it's like, you know, like a crossfire. <laughs> but instead of talking about like the, you know, debates, they're like, um, yeah, you know, they're partially devouring their victims. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is crazy. The, the McLaughlin group, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, Tony Blakely should the bo- should the families of the victims forego the dubious comforts of a funeral to for burn the bodies? Tony Blakely, go. <laughs> Eleanor Clift, we'll get to you in a second. <laughs> and the TV is also used so brilliantly in the sequel, Dawn of the Dead, which yes. you know, we might as well talk about as well, because in a lot of ways, I think maybe Dawn of the Dead is my favorite of the trilogy because it's so much more 
expansive and generous, but I think Night of the Living Dead makes for a better pairing with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and yeah. it, it, it's still so good and effective, but I love the part in Dawn of the Dead where they're watching that guy with the eye patch on TV, and he's calling the TV studio audience dummies. He keeps calling them dummies, dummies. Rationality <laughs> is the only thing that can save us. And he's talking about dropping nuclear bombs on every American city to deal with the, the ghoul infestation. God, that movie, that movie rips. But, I mean, once again, like, we go back to the context of this movie being released in 1968 and feeling, at one hand, like, like it has one foot in the 1950s, and on the other hand, like, it has this foot in this totally, like, terra incognita, an undiscovered continent of, like, true horror and American apocalypse. And, like, I think, like, Romero's, like, his... His his sort of sly like uh, subversive uh, attitude and his like his his sense of humor and showing that like all all sources of traditional authority totally and completely breaking down from the patriarchal paterfamilias Harry to all of these nitwits on the TV and on the news who have no fucking clue what to do yeah, except and when the they sheriff. call on except when they call us around basically just forming a lynch mob that yes, is exactly. that is the response to <laughs> where what's they can going just on. kill every yeah. single thing that moves in, yeah. in, within a hundred mile radius. Hesse, have you seen George Romero's The Crazies? I was just about to say The Crazies. It This reminded me more of The Crazies even than Dawn of the Dead. Because oh, yeah. like The Crazies is just like if he that's had my a favorite bigger Romero. budget. Oh, it's yeah. so good. It's so good. It's so fucking good. Because the, the Crazies is like the same concept, but if he had like a, a much bigger budget. And the, and the Crazies is in, because, like, you know, Vietnam was still raging in 1968. And again, like it's the themes of that are ever present in terms of like cannibalization and the destruct the, the kind of like wholesale destruction of the human body. But by 1974, the crazies is a fascinating movie because it really is about the total collapse and morale of the American military. And just like at, at every level in that movie, like the, the, of their attempts to enforce a quarantine on this like Yinzer town in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, and like, <laughs> it's a political thriller basically. Yeah. It's like really crazy. It's like, uh, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but it's over the top. Like, it, it is over the top broad and how stupid and incompetent everyone is. Yeah, it's like, I can't remember exactly how it ends, but I remember it's like a very funny movie until the end. And then the ending is like, like a gut shot. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, fuck. But the, the last scene of the movie is very hilarious because it's like the, the head of the quarantine just being evacuated by being pulled up just his body like in a sling by a helicopter. And just oh, yes, I remember that. Lifted, I remember off, that. <laughs> lifted off the ground <laughs> out of the absolute horror and carnage that he self-caused. Like a dog that fell into a river or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, Night of the Living Dead is just, we see, it, we, you know, it's like I said, this keyhole glimpse of the apocalypse. We just see it through one farmhouse. And the crazies is way more about like the, because the, the cause is it's like an it's an american military bioweapon that that the, like a plane crashes and infects the water supply of this small town and exposure to it leads to like permanent insanity and violence but in the crazies it's like also kind of vague as to which like what violence is being caused by people's natural panicking reaction to pressure and fear of death and what is them being driven insane by this like bio agent yeah it's Romero's specialty. It's just like the wholesale slaughter of everyday Americans by the, by their neighbors and friends. <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, uh, back to back to the Night of Living Dead. Um, so the TV says that they should try to get to a rescue station, and this is when. Uh, the, the denizens of the farmhouse uh, try to unite for their best attempt at the gas mission, which fails so spectacularly. Yeah, the gas mission is the first side quest. Yeah. Yeah. First side quest they try to do. And like, and, you know, 
I, I feel so bad for them because like they they've managed their inventory so well. You know, they have such a good plan. Yeah, but... they distributed the medicine. They oh, we should also probably mention the uh, daughter has um has been a, has is unconscious the entire movie because she's been bitten, and um she's like in the cellar basically, um being cared for by the mom. So I hope nothing bad comes of that. But <laughs> <laughs> I also uh, back to back to father knows father knows worst. Um, it's also I, I, after after he bitches out Ben upstairs being like this guy's crazy this guy's crazy let's all just be in the basement where there's no exits <laughs> yeah, just, like, the cellar's <laughs> the safest place he yeah, keeps saying so, yeah <laughs> but like as soon as he gets back down to the cellar his wife's like they have a radio upstairs oh god like, <laughs> she just begins nagging the shit out of him about his yeah. incompetent decision to stay cloistered in the basement and then when he gets upstairs and starts looking at like you know in the very short amount of time he's had to do it uh, the very impressive work Ben has done barricading every window and door in the house and he's like look at this ridiculous there there are gaps in our defenses everywhere it's like thanks asshole you didn't do anything to help but uh yeah they the idea is that they craft a molotov cocktails which they're going to be used to distract the ghouls outside the house and then they're going to run to uh, ben's pickup truck out front and drive it to like the the the, there's like a very small gas station down the road and they're going to like unlock the pump fill up the gas tank and then like, you know, uh, a way to safety or to, to help to the rescue center. Yeah. But uh, this is basically undone because the girlfriend character freaks out and like she runs outside to help him with his mission. And, and then, then the dad guy like locks her out the second she walks outside. Yeah. And she tries to turn around and is like, she can't. So she gets in the car and then the guy, it really is the guy that fucks it up big time because he... Yeah. He um, Ben, ben puts ben the torch places on the ground. his torch on the ground. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right, right next to the pickup truck. <laughs> right next to the pickup truck. Um, and shoots the lock off the gas pump. And then the guy Things are going great. <laughs> is freaking out. So far, so good. Everything is going according to plan. He grabs the gas pump. Everything's going well. He pulls it out. He hits. He squeezes it a little too early, but that's okay. He could just get it, put it into the car. Oh no! It's all over the car. It hit the torch. The whole car is on fire, um, and it's leading in a trail back to the gas pump. And then what do we have his girlfriend do? Get in the car and drive off get as, it's, as it's on fire. Away. Yeah. And then she's like, "I'm stuck." Like they stop and they're like, "We have to get out of here." And she's like, "I'm stuck." And then my boom. jacket is stuck. <laughs> It just it just explodes. I mean, like him and that gas pump are like those like uh, sort of like only seen on TV commercials. Where like there's got to be a better way. He's like pouring. Yeah. Shooting. It's like Zoolander. They're shooting gas everywhere. Yeah, literally. But then, um, well, there 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 are there fiery deaths in the uh, automobile explosion. Uh, does make for uh, sort of like a you know a hibachi style dinner for all the ghouls who pull their charred remains out of the driver's seat and begin to have a like a, have a cookout. You know, they're yeah. invited to the cookout. <laughs> but like it's a, uh, it's a really disturbing scene where it's just them like eating like raw liver and like entrails, like, fighting over yeah, entrails, ripping the flesh off of bones and like it's it's really good, nasty stuff. And uh, I think it was like, you know, like to the, the Pittsburgh quality is of the people who made this movie. It was like, I think someone who worked on the, on the, on the film, like a relative owned like a meat warehouse. And he was like, yeah, I'll just, <laughs> I just donated some spoiled meat to the production. So like all those entrails and livers and like big like femur bones that they're gnawing on. That was all, that was all real spoiled meat. Yeah. When you, now that you say it's Pittsburgh, I, it really makes sense. Cause one of my notes is there's a lot of square heads in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> You know, George Romero and all of his movies are Western Pennsylvania excellence. 
But um, so like a- after the gas uh, debacle, I mean, like they're, you know, uh, they, they they bungle that so badly that it's basically like it, it's at this point, it's pretty much over. Mission <laughs> pretty failed. Pretty much over yeah. for, yeah, for <laughs> everyone. Done. Yeah. Um, they go back into the house and the ghouls start breaking through the barricades and it's real bad. And um, it really all starts to fall apart. Um, the mother starts getting like, starts really trying to get grabbed by arms. It really seems like um, yeah, th- that are coming through the wall. Randomly, Harry tries to do a coup and like take the gun from Ben and like fails. He tries this twice and uh, Ben kind of lets him off the hook the first time. And the second time he's like, no, that's yeah. <laughs> fool me once, shame on you. Yeah, he just so he kills Harry, who then staggers down to the basement. But then, like at this point, um, uh, Barbara has like as as the ghouls are pounding, they're, they're, they've broken down the door and they're all coming through. And Barbara is trying to like hold the door shut, and then sees the shambling cadaver of Johnny, her you know <laughs> sadistic, uh, probably incestuous older uh, older brother. Yeah, and then like is basically consumed by him. Like she's just sort of like is pushed into a sea of arms and is uh, reunited with her brother in like you know a a, a scene of some uh, of, of not too subtle like sexual implications of like her being yeah. grabbed and, ta- and thrown into this her finally this law. Her, yeah her arc comes full circle with her being thrown into into her brother's arms and i really do think they based the um I really think they based the design of Mason Verger in the Hannibal TV show on Johnny in this scene specifically because yeah. his hair is going like straight up. He has the driving gloves. He has this like I never thought of that, but yeah, like Michael Pitt. Michael Pitt as Mason Verger. I think yes. definitely that was a lot of uh, they're coming for you, Barbara. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of that in there. But we shouldn't we shouldn't let too much guy go by without talking about um, the the news footage they see of the uh, lynch mob, which of course oh, plays yeah. plays very heavily into the end of this movie. But um, I just like the like so like it seems like they have things pretty well under control, and it's just basically like a militia. And I, I think this is so funny because when we're recording this, I mean you're going to listen to this in October, but Western Pennsylvania just went through something where that like five foot tall. Venezuelan guy escaped from prison and then like half of the state was like trooping through the woods with guns trying to track him down <laughs> that was like George Romero portrayed that first in Night of the Living Dead where it was just like these fucking like these these yinzer shitheads with like bandoliers of fucking bullets on them just yeah. chopping a cigar walking around going yeah can we, can we get some fire on that body over there like I gotta just shoot on, it again literally. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, my favorite moment is when the uh, like the TV reporter is asking like the local sheriff like hey how how's things going with this um cannibal holocaust uh, being carried out here and he's like well right. pretty good he goes uh, <laughs> he's like he goes the the men are taken to it pretty well and like i thought that was like the most disturbing line in the movie because like yes. <laughs> the men are taken to it pretty because it's like uh literally christmas for them <laughs> yeah just like um killing what used to be your neighbors and throwing their body on a yes. giant funeral pyre yeah they're taking it to it pretty well and this is what i mean about like 1968 like you know the assassination of Martin Luther King, the Tet Offensive, the Vietnam War raging and high gear, and then like a you know 
you know, a series of very violent riots all over the country following the assassination of Martin Luther King. And then like the racial and cultural lines on which the country was tearing itself apart. And I think like, you know, in, in Romero's kind of like nasty, subversive sense of humor, I think the point of this is that like the men are taking it to it so well because like they've we've it's been primed for this for so long we want nothing more than to just kill everyone else yeah. around us kill yourself and everyone around you as someone once said yes, exactly and i also um before they even turn on the tv it's really funny that like um they're all sitting in the house and i think it's before they fail the gas the gas side quest um and they're like sitting and they're just like sitting around and just waiting for three o'clock because they're like oh, the news is going to be on at three o'clock. We got to watch the news. And they're like, oh, it's going to be on in 10 minutes. And they're just tr- <laughs> killing the fucking time until they can watch the news. And then they turn on the news and it's like, yep, everything's going great. <laughs> like the power goes out. It's like, it's so funny. But I, I really love the TV broadcast. It's one of my favorite parts of this movie. We go now to a live report of the hunt for the marauding ghouls. <laughs> yes, and I, I just like, I'm like, I go, kill the brain and you kill the ghoul. <laughs> yeah. Tips you can use. Yeah. And the crossfire guys being like, um, yeah, I mean, it's just dead flesh. You could, you just have to burn it, you know, forego any traditional burial, uh, no matter what your creed might be. But (laughs) (laughs) it's like, it's just so, it's so ghoulish. It's like, they're the ghouls on TV as well. You know, uh, if if you, please engage the brain of the ghoul in a kinetic style penetration. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, there's also a very funny scene of like a general and some like White House chief of staff being like escorted out of some like high level meeting. And that's where we hear the idea that it was like uh, the explosion of a probe from Venus that like showered the planet with radiation or something. But while one like while the scientist is uh, is giving that line, like the general's like, well, I wouldn't know if we, I, you know, I don't think we can say that at this point. Like they're bickering with each other about like what they can and can't say or what what the what the uh, explanation for the uh, ghoul holocaust really is. And then believe. Believe it or not, it cuts to uh, that Burger King Whopper commercial that played after Jamar <laughs> Hamlin got hit. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's also telling that Dawn of the Dead um, begins very abruptly in a TV studio as yes. everything is going to shit. Yeah, it's kind of like a payback of that moment because they everyone gets murked in there. Yeah. And like, you know, you see like, you know, like half of the staff are just leaving. They're just walking out the door and the other is like, no, we have to give, we have to keep giving people the news. Yeah. <laughs> but basically like their paper is just being thrown up everywhere. Like they're trying to, they're trying to communicate the, the gravity of this horror, but basically everyone is running for the exits at the same time. But yeah, I, the, the portrayal of the media in, 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 in George Romero movies are always really funny. Yeah. But, uh, Basically, you know, Ben is the is the final survivor. Everyone else dies, um, and, and not before the uh, the daughter, uh, the injured daughter in the basement, comes back to life, um, uh, eats the flesh of her dead father, and then kills her mother with a trowel. Yeah, just like stabs her with a trowel, and then Ben has to hide in the basement as the house is overtaken. He barricades himself in there, but not before having learned from the news to kill the brain, kill the ghoul, kill the husband and like the the wife and husband over again. Yeah, he like double taps them both. Yeah, so he lives through the night. Um, he he emerges uh, the next day. As the uh, Western Pennsylvania cleanup crew, <laughs> a mass, like uh, you know, approaches the house and cleans up the the various uh, remaining ghouls outside. Very evocative image of uh, a bunch of police officers holding 
uh, foaming at the mouth German shepherds who were like chomping at the bit to get to get like some blood. It's like, oh, what does that remind me of? Has, oh my god! I, like, I swear to God, I hadn't seen this movie in a while, but I totally forgot about that. And like the first thing you see of the next morning are these cops, yeah, like taking these canine units, these vicious German shepherds out of the back of a truck, and they're like, you know, baying for blood. They're holding them back. And again, the connections here to any to what Americans had been seeing on the news over the last couple of years uh, in the 1960s is unmistakable. And it's like, yeah, like this lynch mob who's just like, you know, th- th- you know, very nonchalantly just doming like the remaining ghouls outside. Uh, ben is in the living room. He's about to be helped by them, but they just see a movement inside the house and they just shoot him, kill him. They just shoot him right between yeah. the eyes from outside. They just shoot him in the head and he's walking towards the window with a gun in his hands. Yeah. So it's like, and then they literally, it's so unceremonious. They just like, nice shot he's down (laughs) and fucking the last line of the movie is the head of the lynch mob the sheriff says good shot he goes okay he's dead that's another one for the fire and then the movie ends like the credits roll in such a fucking nightmarish way that is like so modern and really like it takes the movie out of being straddling these two worlds and sends it into the total abyss yeah and the credits to the movie play out in a series of still images of Ben's body being t- carried by meat hooks and thrown on a pyre. Yeah. And burned. It's so upsetting and like disturbing. And it's like, yeah, these like black and white, like gray, you could see like the grain of the images. It just feels so real and like yeah. upsetting and crazy. The police uniforms and, you know, it's, it's all very, it's it's all very icky and you know there's no music at the end it's yeah, it's just all like, silent it's all silent and you just when when like the still because like the thing is like it wouldn't have been effect as effective if they had just like tried to portray it um it just regularly like in film with motion of like the meat hooks ripping into the body because like then it would you'd have to show a certain amount of artifice to like uh, portray that kind of gore and it would take you out of it i think to a certain degree yeah whereas like these these grainy still images of like yeah our hero and a black man being killed and then having his body disposed of like trash by these like hick fucking (laughs) lynch mob (laughs) is is so upsetting and this has got to be like one of the first movies that like hits you that hard with like the charismatic competent protagonist the handsome hero of the movie surviving and then being killed for no reason yeah like that there's no hope there's no escape yeah because like even like in the 50s like a lot of like those sci-fi movies there's no real like equivalent of that you know i guess like yeah you know, Planet of the Apes, kind of. I think maybe like Psycho is like the first one to really do that with Janet Leigh, where you yeah, think she's the main yeah, character yeah. and then she's just brutally murdered in like the first third of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoilers for Psycho. I actually didn't know that happened the first time I watched Psycho. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Even I knew better. she died, but I didn't know that it was uh, he dressed as the mother and the mother was dead. Oh, God. Um, a lot of allusions to Psycho in Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. We yes. can get into that. But I guess just like the, the ending of Night of the Living Dead is really what's, what, for me, elevates it from being like a really effective horror movie to like, a, I think, a real work of art and like a real masterpiece. And just like how willing to be, utter, how utterly bleak and nihilistic the ending of the movie is and how utterly bereft of hope or meaning in that like all human meaning and relationships are just obliterated on the funeral pyre. Like yeah. the, one, you're, the brain is destroyed. Kill the ghoul, like, and it's just that's another one for the fire. 
Like that line just always sticks with me. Yeah. The men are taken to it. <laughs> <laughs> what about some other George Romero movies we can talk about? Just recommend because I mean, there's, there's a. I, I, I'm so charmed by his entire body of work. I think he's like, you know, I mean, one of the greatest horror directors. But he's just, he's just a damn fine director. He's one of our greatest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, The Crazies is my favorite by far. One of my favorite movies of the '70s. Honestly, it's like so. It's so crazy, and it's, it's even has nastier like, than Ned Living Dead. Yeah, it has a sheen to it that's like really wonderful. Um, the what's the one with uh, fucking Stephen King? Creep Show. Creep Show. Yeah, Creep Show is fantastic. If you're looking for a a fun Halloween based movie, like or just sort of like a fun like the definition of a spooky fun movie, it's like you know it's the kind of like Crypt Keeper anthology series. It's like three short films. Uh, all of them are great, based on that kind of like EC horror comics of where like these sort of gr- these sort of funny, gory, ironic endings. So like you know like a, yeah. a gr- gruesome O. Henry stories, basically. Yeah, they're goofy and silly and they're so much fun that's one of my favorite halloween like go-to movies when i'm just looking for something fun to watch like uh that like reanimator um that's not him actually but that's just like a classic fun halloween movie yeah fun just fun nothing but fun nothing but Um, boring fun yeah day of the dead um Oh, have you seen Monkey Shines? Yes, Monkey Shines is great too. It's <laughs> a really uh, good one. <laughs> and then, like you know, his his, his original zombie trilogy—you know, uh, Night of, Dawn of, and Day of the Dead—are all fucking masterpieces. He then, you know, in the George W. Bush era, like people sort of got a yen for the, like the George Romero American Apocalypse again. I don't know why. I mean, it seems, it seems like <laughs> yeah. an odd time. It seems uh-huh. like an odd time for Romero to become in vogue again. And then he did like a new trilogy i think he made four additional zombie movies that are of sort of like depreciating value but they're still i think definitely worse uh, land of the dead i think is excellent they get like i said they're of depreciating value by the time you get to island of the dead but you know he didn't make diary of the dead right no he Was made diary him? of the dead oh i like diary of the dead I There's remember. some cool stuff in that. I like the uh, the Mennonite guy in that movie. Yes, <laughs> the or the Amish guy again. Once again, Pennsylvania. Um, and then I guess like the 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 last George Romero movie I'll recommend is a movie called Season of the Witch, which is kind of like a '70s kind of like feminist like uh, horror, like a narrative about kind of a bored housewife who gets into witchcraft. And it's like it's, it's sort of like vague as to whether like oh is there really an element of the occult here or does she just want to murder her stupid husband? Oh my god, I've been meaning to watch this. I actually haven't seen it. Definitely worth checking out. So I think that does it for Romero and Night of the Living Dead, which will I think uh, nice. if, if you watch these movies back to back, it. it uh, it, it informs Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, brilliantly. I mean, like, both yeah. movies are basically about houses where bad things happen. But as I said, Romero walks so Toby Hooper could run in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is truly, I think, the bleakest and most nihilistic movie ever made. I think this might be the best movie ever made. I was, like, watching it last, like, last night, and I was like, this is for real. Like, there's no movie that's better than this. Like, it's... You know, it's like top three for me for sure, like all time, maybe number one. And I, I, mean, I really think it's the best movie ever. Uh, you know who else regards uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre as one of the greatest movies ever made? Who? French actress Isabelle Huppert. Oh, <laughs> my queen. 
<laughs> who said of it, it's just a beautiful movie. <laughs> it's just a beautiful movie. She's so right. <laughs> she, she couldn't be more right. Right, we are back. Now, in in discussing Night of the Living Dead, I said that like it's a movie with sort of like one foot in each era, and that like over the course of watching the movie, and certainly by that hor- horrific credit sequence of uh, Ben's body being tossed onto a fire with meat hooks, I think it like midwifes a kind of a, a new kind of cinema, like a new kind of feeling in the horror genre of like that of total, total apocalypse and nihilism. By 1974, when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, I mean, to use a cliche, America was now post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, you know, post-oil crisis. Like, America was fully doom-pilled. So Toby Hooper with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he creates a movie in the room that like, George Romero opened the door to this room, to this undiscovered continent of like, America's nightmare. And Toby Hooper with Texas Chainsaw Massacre makes a movie that is like, hermetically sealed in that room of horror that like George Romero created in in Night of the Living Dead. Like from the like the last shots of Night of the Living Dead are where every second of Texas Chainsaw Massacre takes place. An America that is a slaughterhouse. That Mm -hmm. we are all just meat on the way to the fucking (laughs) on the way to having our heads bashed in with a sledgehammer. Yeah. What happened was true. the most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. Sally, I hear something. Stop! Stop! This is the movie that is just as real. Just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. And like the way that it opens too, because it opens with the there's the voiceover where it's John like this is a true story. Yeah, yeah. John Larroquette's beautiful voice. I mean, we'll we'll get into the uh, the the character of the brother, which I have a yes. lot of feelings about. Yeah, like John Larroquette is like this is the true story of a girl and her invalid brother. Yes, <laughs> <her> <laughs> invalid brother. They really treat Franklin poorly in this movie. Poor oh Franklin. Oh my god, it is okay, <laughs> listeners. Listeners, <laughs> content warning for Abe. Yes, because very the portrayal film. of uh, Franklin in this movie, the disabled brother, is just about the worst depiction of a disabled person ever put to film. This movie, yes. this movie, you know, midwife, not just like true American nihilism and horror. This movie also created ableism. Yeah, it's, in the it's 70s. truly, uh, it blazed the trail for ableism. And, <laughs> and we thank him for that. Yes, <laughs> we salute him. <laughs> yeah. And there are like funny parts in this movie, but it's like it's so evil. The this movie is so evil. It's so real too. Like yeah. I, my younger brother Jack, uh, if you're listening, hi Jack. He hates movies that were made before like 2005. 
he thinks they're old and doesn't want to watch them. All but movies before him, the Matrix are, cr- are shit. Yeah, he doesn't even like the Matrix. He's like, it's too long. <laughs> oh my God. But I showed him this movie when we were in high school and he was like, this is this goes so hard. <laughs> he was like, this movie rocks. This this is one of those movies that, uh, to, to, to quote uh, the great Lex G, contains true evil, trademark Lex G. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, I just have like, such a palpable feeling of, it's not complete revulsion or disgust because it is actually very beautiful at times as well. But like, this movie just, it gets under your skin so deeply and it is so deeply upsetting. Despite being not all that gory or violent like yeah most of the most of the true horror in this movie is kind of implied like if you compare this to texas chainsaw massacre 2 by toby hooper which oh, is yeah. i think another masterpiece the, with that the movie, greatest sequel ever made yeah <laughs> th- is, that movie is just a, a slaughterhouse from start to finish like the gore and entrails <laughs> yeah. in that movie are out of control my favorite line delivery in any movie ever is in that movie when dennis hopper says no you're probably right probably cut his own head off with a chainsaw <laughs> going 80 miles an hour. <laughs> and then, of course, Bill Mosley as Chop Top in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is probably my favorite horror movie performance. My favorite horror movie yes. character of all time is the, <laughs> so the great Chop Top, who unfortunately is not featured in the original. But I think it's so I think it's so amazing that Toby Hooper made probably one of the most disturbing movies of all time and then decided to do a sequel that just like absolutely slams but play everything for laughs. Yes, it can make it a complete goofball fest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like in many ways a million times more revolting and like at least visually disgusting than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. But the yeah. original is so spiritually disgusting and ho- like it's, it is just this movie infects you. It stains your soul when you watch it. And the thing is like, I think the most common thing people say about this movie is that it feels like a snuff film. Yes. Like, it like, really like it feels does. like they just took a 16 millimeter camera and just like filmed some depraved hillbillies murdering some college <laughs> yes. kids. Literally. But I think that kind of like, I, I think that doesn't give enough credit to what a brilliant director Toby Hooper is. And the kind of like the lush colors in this movie, the blues of the skies and like the reds of their clothes, the red of that door in the Sawyer household. Yeah. And then like those long, like the shot from below tracking ending. shots. The, the best ending ever in the history of movies. Like, absolutely yeah. breathtaking oh my insane. god yeah. one of the most chilling cuts to black like ever because it doesn't look like lo-fi or amateurish at all like it has it has a real a queasy realism to it but i think like the snuff film qualities come across because of the kind of hyper realist aspects of what toby hooper is doing here this kind of like you know, like we talked about this a lot before and like some of like the great ways that cinema can create something, a feeling of reality uh, by sort of like transcending reality and creating a kind of dream reality. Like, you know, when you dream of a place that you grew up or a location that's very well known to you, but in your dream, it's always a little different. It's never quite exactly what you remember or what you'd experience. That's like, it's something is standing in for that or it's playing the part of, you know, the house you grew up in or the school you went to or whatever. And I think Toby Hooper uses that same kind of like, like the lushness of the colors and the repeated motif of the sun and the moon, just like bearing like a kind of silent witness to the absolute depravity and like a pitiless indifference to the absolute depravity of humanity. And like, the sun and the moon also goes with the, the opening title card, which looks like a close-up of like 
an alien hell planet. Like, yes. uh, is this crazy, like, black and red, like, fluid, uh, like, diffusion thing. Yeah, like, the, the, the opening credit. And then, like, a, as you hear, like, similar to Romero, the use of the radio and, like, these little snippets you get of the outside world, for, like, that, that pierce the like oppressive suffocating environment of the movie. And like one of the first things you hear in the movie is about like a Texas oil refinery explosion. Yeah. And the, like the first thing you see is like these little desecrated uh, corpse. Yeah. And the way it's done is like these flashes of like a camera because someone has dug up a corpse and is taking pictures. But the sound design on that moment is the scariest sound I've ever heard in a movie. Maybe it's like, the weird, like, like I can't even describe it, but you know. I mean, like we talked about in *Night of Living Dead*, like the the racket that plays outside, like the sound, like this buzzing sound that you hear, this horrible buzzing. And then when Ben throws Barbara in the house and slams the door, everything inside the house is like completely silent. And the contrast between like oppressively violent noise and then no noise is is really effective. Toby Hooper, the sound design in this movie is incredible like it's it's one of the best like sound effects and use one of the most effective uses of sound ever in a movie and like and he plays the the jarring discordant noises and ambient sounds like he plays that to the hilt and it is oh yeah so dreadful and effective in this movie like you'll never ever forget the sound of the of leatherface's hammer coming down on the guy's yep. head for the first time <laughs> like, and like well let's talk about that scene i mean like we we go like destroying the plot but like yeah one of the most like the scene where kirk is slaughtered the first one of them to be like because like one by one they just sort of wander into the fucking sawyer household and are butchered by leatherface yeah but kirk is the first one and it's the it's the absence of sound or any kind of like technique to like heighten the fear in that moment is so incredible because like it's the opposite of a jump scare keep in yeah. mind from the john larrakat monologue like from, the, from the, the the opening crawl of the movie tells you similar to the coen brothers in fargo they they they, they mr too damn cap they tell you this movie is real <laughs> everything happened it is presented exactly as it as it occurred like which is you know complete bullshit i mean it, yeah. it even begins with a date what is it like august 18th 1973 it's like yes a, a date a time and a place it's like oh this <laughs> yes. is this is real this really happened <laughs> and of course, you know, it didn't, but you know, I want yeah. to believe. So from the opening frame of the movie, similar to Night of the Living Dead, the world is already over, or at least the world of these <laughs> young people. You know, yeah. you know that they're going to meet an unspeakable end. And like the way it just lets that play with like almost nothing happening for a long time, like when they pick up the hitchhiker, I mean, it, like it gets worse and worse, but you like about halfway through the movie, you begin wondering, like, oh, when's the horrible stuff going to start happening? And then it does. Yeah, and then it, it really, really just, like, starts it, happening. It, it, and like, and then it like it really doesn't let up from there. But what I mean is like the the scene with Kirk, the first killing in the movie. There's no sound, and there's no like there's no editing either. It's just he wanders into the house, walks through the most sinister looking door I've ever seen. Yes, kind of slips quickly, like slips on some gore or viscera on the floor of their slaughterhouse. I think it's just the the carpet. Yeah, he literally slips on like a cheap carpet that's just in the middle like, of the floor, and then it just happens so quickly. There's no sound. Leatherface's body, the first time you see him, just moves into the frame of the door and just whacks him in the head twice with a hammer. And then you see his body, like his legs shaking, as he like the spasms of his death. Him shaking on the floor 
is so scary and crazy and Leatherface just dragging him in and then slamming the metal door shut behind him. Compare that to the next kill, which is his girlfriend who goes into the house to look for him and how he plays up, like he uses every director's trick to like foreshadow, heighten the, the like that. Like that's one of the most foreshadowed kills ever in a movie when like yeah. it follows her, like, you know, like the tracking shot that is very reminiscent of Janet Lee's sister approaching the house above the Bates, Bates Motel in Psycho, where yeah. it's like shot from below and it like follows her into the house and then she like collapses into the kitchen full of like just bone sculptures and feathers. One of the most it's, it's repellent scenes ever in a movie. Yeah, covered in like bird down and like feathers. And it's like, oh, God, you can like smell the room like from your living room and you know Leatherface has slammed the metal door to like the slaughterhouse part of the part of the country home but then when she comes out the door opens and it's Leatherface there and like then you hear that sound and like it's just like it uses sound to make the scare but like I just the contrast between the first killing which is the most disturbing one probably which has no bells and whistles at all it just happens yeah and you don't even really know what's happening because because like without the soundtrack or any kind of like hard edit or angles like it does like you're almost like you almost like don't know what's happening and you're like your your brain takes a second to catch up with the horror of what you've just seen and like that's really effective and then he does the traditional scare with like the when he grabs the girl and pulls her into the house and then puts her on a meat hook oh yeah god. puts her like hooks her back into a fucking meat hook and she's just screaming and like struggling it's like so upsetting Let's go, let's go back a little time a little bit to the movie because we need to talk about the, the scene with, where they pick up the hitchhiker. Yes. And like, yes. to me, like the most important thing about this movie is that like, what is Texas about? They love cattle and leading cattle to slaughter. I mean, because that's what you yeah. do with cattle. It's a state based on cattle. Like the city of Dallas is a city because it was like, you know, the, uh, the, the railroad destination where you could like offload these huge strings of cattle and then send them to the stockyards in Chicago to be slaughtered or elsewhere. Yeah. But like the repeated invocation of meat in this movie and the scene where they pick up this gr- utter. Uh, okay. Also has the use of grotesques in this movie. Yes. It's so cool. This, this guy is like, he's clearly a, a blueprint that chop top will be built upon yes, because they yes. have the same kind of mannerisms. They have a similar James Franco style look to them. <laughs> and they, um, a wine colored, uh, birthmark on his face. Yeah. Birthmark or a burn or something yeah. on his face. When they visit the graveyard and there's just that old drunk who sort of like lies down and starts talking to one of the characters like upside down, yes. just, <laughs> just jabbering nonsense. Like yeah. it's just like, it's just such a profound sense of unease from every corner of this movie. Yeah. And, um, eventually when she finds the guy at the, like, rest stop and asks him for help and it's like you really can't trust anyone in in texas <laughs> they're all they're all in on this crazy uh slaughter conspiracy texas is just one big slaughterhouse like the, the the true horror of these movies is its is its location honestly yeah like when they the, when they pick up the hitchhiker the first thing that happens while they're heading to pick him up is everyone in the van goes like Oh, what's that horrible smell? That's like something oh, man. stinks. And then uh, Franklin is like, "Hey, look, guys, there's the slaughterhouse." <laughs> and they, because um, they're passing the slaughterhouse, and it's almost as if like they've entered into noxious territory. They're, they've entered like. Have you have you ever been in a car that's driven past like a major industrial slaughterhouse? No, <laughs> it is appalling. 
Oh my like, god! Like seriously, if you've ever been, if you ever, if uh, any listener, if you've ever driven up the mid, like just like the Central Valley of California, the most cursed stretch of highway on the planet, the most apocalyptic view from a car you could possibly get. <laughs> There is about like almost an hour of that drive that goes right past one of the biggest industrial beef processing facilities in the country. It's known affectionately as Cowschwitz by oh <laughs> California <my God>. residents. <laughs> but like the smell of shit and blood, it, it, like even if every window in your car is rolled up and like the fans are turned off, if you don't have the AC on, gets in your pores. It oh is God. astonishingly, it is so horrifying. It is enough to like make you consider becoming a vegetarian, honestly. Yeah. But like the, the hitchhiker and the whole Sawyer family and their relation to the, the, the beef industry is really the most fascinating part about this movie. Because one of the conversations they have with the hitchhiker, this absolute freak grotesque they never should have picked up. Yeah, they're all like crowded in the front of the van to stay as yeah. far away from him as possible. And of course, the like the fucking invalid brother, the, the gimp idiot, has to engage him in conversation about killing uh, the best way to... He's like, it, like, he starts telling him the best way to kill cattle is with a sledgehammer. And then he's like, oh, I thought they just use a gun now. Like, you know, like the Anton Chigurh gun. Yeah, they, like, I thought they do Anton Chigurh to the cows. Isn't that better? Yeah. And then like, and then he just starts like, you know, mumbling and muttering about how the sledgehammer is much better. And he says a line, my family's always been in beef, which I, yeah. always, which I always love. And then in the car, Toby Hooper starts intercutting images of just cows in a stall. And like yeah. you're waiting for a sledgehammer to hit this, like a real cow. Like you, that to me is like among the most disturbing parts of the movie is because like it comes out of nowhere and he's just like foreshadowing these people are meat. They yes. are fucking meat. They are cows to the slaughter. And like, I love when he says like, my granddaddy used to be able to do 200 cows in a day with that sledgehammer. <laughs> and it's like, that's insane. Like, the, the just the image of this, like, guy. And then when you meet the grandpa, it's oh, God. insanely disturbing because it's like, Oh, this guy. The cook played by Jim Sido, uh, the the elder, like the, the father Sawyer, when yes. he just starts talking about like, oh, don't be worried. It's just don't, never don't take him more than one lick to put down them steers, you know, like, yeah. oh, God. And but also crucially that like the Sawyer family has been uh, sort of displaced from the like they have been uh they're, they're they've been displaced from the cattle industry with the advent of the uh pressurized air gun slaughter technique because it's sort of like yeah they're they're old school and there's no more use for a guy who can kill 60 cows in five minutes with a hammer <laughs> yeah, so like what do they do they do what they've always done which is like and look there's a certain reading of this movie about like sort of for lack of a better word the white working class in the neoliberal turn in the 70s because like yeah. as we offshore manufacturing and just get rid of the need for like large swaths of the American population like these you know uh, rural white people left to their own devices like sort of shorn from any like uh, economic or governmental uh, concern or uh, or use uh, will perhaps result to can resort to cannibalism yeah absolutely and they're like it's really like yeah there's a stagnation that you can feel in like their house is like one of the scariest houses in um in like the history of movies for real it's like so fucking crazy and the way it's escalated in the text chainsaw massacre 2 is like 
It's like a th- derelict theme park that it's they. A, it's, a der- it's a derelict theme park called Texas Battleland. It is a theme park dedicated to the like to Texas's uniquely blood-soaked history. Like, there's a scene where Dennis Hopper kicks. There's like a mural of Davy Crockett at the Alamo, and Dennis Hopper kicks the Davy Crockett figure, and like he kicks Gorgeous through the wall, and like out. a fucking like a, a, a like the like the, the the Overlook Hotel's fucking elevator doors open, and entrails just spill out of the side this wall and then he starts screaming tear it down and chainsawing <laughs> every support beam he sees and running through it it's that's also really you should you should all see texas chainsaw massacre too if you haven't it's amazing night of living dead and texas chainsaw massacre like basically you need to watch the series now and not any of the yeah. shitty remakes of texas chainsaw massacre texas chainsaw massacre one and two and then night of dawn of and day of the dead yeah did you also catch uh, when franklin compares the hitchhiker to dracula Oh, I missed that. <laughs> uh, he calls him like a Dracula. And then I think like uh, uh, the hitchhiker says a family full of Draculas at one point. And I think oh, yeah. like, <laughs> it's a little quotes like that because, you know, Dracula is a figure of European aristocracy that, of course, you know, basically eats people, kind of cannibalizes people for his own livelihood and life. Whereas the Sawyer family are like, there's no uh, no no pretensions of European or nobility. <laughs> they're not living yeah. in a Romanian castle or whatever. These well, are just Texas like nobility. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, uh, champion of the chili cookout in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah, see in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. <laughs> what's what's just, your secret ingredient? <laughs> I, I love uh, the the cook uh, Pa Sawyer in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Goes. That's what I've always loved about Dallas. This is a city that loves its prime meats. <laughs> Like, like, and and here it's just like, okay, like living off people or living off peasantry to survive. And like, now this is like a family, like shorn from the culture and the economy who has sort of like developed their own kind of like tribalistic religion based on like, you know, with all their like, uh, bone art, bone artwork and crafts projects that they're doing in their house. Yeah. Like and the way the way that the uh, hitchhiker defends the sledgehammer, it like kind of goes into that because he's like, "No, they died better that way." Yeah, <laughs> it's like by better, do you mean like their heads fucking exploded? Like, <laughs> and why is that better? Like, it's better because they just love it. They just love it. Yeah, like um, they're they're, res- they're resisting the you know modern neoliberalization of the American economy. Yeah, they're replacing like the uh the folk religion of like blood and gore yeah. and murder with <laughs> that, that uh, is the folk religion of texas <laughs> yes. it's just wholesale slaughter yeah uh the scene where the hitchhiker uh takes a photo of franklin and then demands money for it and then burns it in the car is so yeah. fuck after, after slicing his own hand with franklin's shitty pocket knife and then breaking out a straight razor and then and then like burning his photo shrieking and then grabbing franklin's arm and slicing it yeah and before that even he's like uh he shows Franklin, he's like, check out these pictures. And like, he's showing him like pictures of naked ladies um, or something. No, it's like pictures. And, no, it's pictures of meat. It's pictures yeah, it's of pictures meat of dead, like, ca- like carcasses and shit. That, it's that, like, you know, after watching the movie, you realize they're just photos of his victims. And that's why he's taking yeah. Franklin's photo. And then the first shot of the movie is like the grave being despoiled and the camera flash bulb yeah. going off and the little, the little wee like wine of it as the, as the flash charges a second time. Yeah. That that's, and you realize it's him taking the photos, him and Leatherface, his beautiful brother and uh, truly one of the great uh, 
you know, brother relationships in cinema is Leatherface and the brother. Yes. And and when the hitchhiker takes Franklin's photo and like the fact that photos are like a big part of their ritual MO here, I think is very interesting because we started talking about how this movie midwifes its own kind of new American horror, like a true American apocalypse informed by Night of the Living Dead. And I think like capturing his victims on on, on film is like an interesting part of the ritual because it's like, and then the references to Dracula, the references to Psycho. Like I think Toby Hooper is kind of creating and destroying the idea of a horror film in this movie. Yes, exactly. And there's and like and, and there, there's one really interesting detail about the very last scene of the movie that I'll get to that I think speaks to this. But I want to talk now about um, we we talked about earlier the the the, the invalid brother uh, Franklin yes. and how evil and like the use and abuse of his character in this movie is so interesting because yeah. kind of similar to Shelley Duvall in The Shining where like she is so harried and like frightened by the end of that movie that like and kind of annoying that you are considering killing her so yes. that when Jack Nicholson goes totally insane Franklin in this movie the wheelchair brother I wanted to murder him from like the first minutes of this movie he is yeah. such an annoying shithead he is so I just like in my notes I just keep writing fuck this guy over and over again. <laughs> I felt so bad for when they I get know, to the house I know. and they're stuck. <laughs> There's no ramp and no one cares. <laughs> and like they're all upstairs having get... a good time. <laughs> yes. And he just goes <laughs> He has yeah, this he's disgusting like... meltdown where he like yes. blows raspberries. And, but the way Toby Hooper just makes him into such an unlikable grotesque is yeah, so he has meat is he has so a evil in his and pocket. <laughs> no, yeah, he, he has a sausage coming out of his mouth that looks like a finger for like a good twenty minutes of the movie. Yeah, well, that's. I was like thinking, like, do you think they got that at the corn at the because they stop at the rest stop that uh, the cook yes. owns? So yeah, he's no, probably eating uh, human yep, meat right there. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's it's very clear when he first bites into the sausage that something's off about it. That he, yeah. but he still, <laughs> but he still keeps eating it because like. Again, like just how unpleasant they make his character as like a, a a fat disabled person is like is so evil. Yeah, they really they really play it up. They ham it up. <laughs> the point I want to make is that like, okay, Kirk and his girlfriend have already been slaughtered at this point, and yeah. and and then also like the 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 other guy who's driving the car, he's been he's been killed as well. So it's now just uh, it's just like uh, the the final girl. Uh, do you remember her name? Shit, I forget. Sally. 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 Yeah, Sally and and her brother, and like he has been a pain in their ass all day, and like it's nighttime now, and it's like he's like she, he needs her to push him in his chair, and like at, at this point in the movie, like we get into like the the final stretch of it and like there's this back and forth between him where franklin just keeps mewling and going come on sally come on sally 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 <laughs> and she's like just trying to like explain to him and like she pushes him towards the the sawyer household and then leatherface comes out of nowhere and just like you know saws him in half saws him in half with the chin, which is a very interesting scene cuz there's no blood in that scene yeah you just see him shrieking and ah, like, but you're, it's, and it's sort of like, it's, it's shocking, but also a relief because like I said, I'd been fantasizing about killing him for quite some time, yeah. but that's what I mean. Like the movie enlists you, it like, it indicts you in its own depravity yes. and evilness. Like you're looking at the pictures, you're looking, you're literally looking at the pictures that uh, yeah. Toby Hooper is handing you much like the hitchhiker. Yeah. But what I mean is like the, the lead up to that and just like his 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 mewling and like the inability for him to him and his sister to communicate 
is like right before it gets into like really launches into like the true climax of the movie, it is sort of already um, demonstrating to you that language has lost all meaning. Yeah, that, like that. That the the horror, like the unspeakable atrocities of that's already happened in this film and that are going to happen, essentially, yeah, you know, like o- obliterate language and meaning. And Hessa, every time I watch this movie, I'm struck by it and like how they managed to pull it off based on like the very weird pacing of the movie. Yeah, the, like there's the fact that there's no exposition or backstory to any of these characters or very 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 little. Like we don't even know why Franklin is in the wheelchair. And again, it's evil because you start thinking like, oh, was he born that way or did his dumbass do it to himself? There, yeah. i.e., I can feel less bad for him. Yeah, <laughs> but the last thirty to forty minutes of this movie are nonstop. Are, it, it, are just like language. Is language rendered, melts away and it's language all melts away entirely it is just it is shrieking guttural <laughs> animal noises and just the guttering of a chainsaw that's yeah. all you hear and then like the, the sawyer family communicate with each other but not in any like human way it is just yeah. the wretched like a capering of the damned it is it has like god why does this movie work so well why does this movie get under it's, your skin it so goes fucking so hard it goes so fucking hard because like there's this slow build up like a a roller coaster going up to yeah um, the like apex of the drop yeah yeah and the the thing about the finale that is like because Franklin gets chainsawed and then Sally spends a long time running from um Leatherface Leatherface yeah. and it's a very conventional Yes. You know, it's kind of a conventional uh, horror um, It's like a girl with big jugs running through yeah. the woods, screaming, and then like a monster is chasing her. And then goes, yeah, goes into the house, and in the house, things kind of start to change. Like, no, she, she like, goes to the gas station that they were at earlier. Yes, well, she goes to the gas station, and she's like... Oh, um, she goes to the house first, yeah, sorry. Yeah, she goes to the house first. She sees the grandpa in the, in the attic who looks like... And the corpse like, of the mother. Yeah, the grandpa looks like a corpse. The grandpa is so disturbing to me because he looks... He really looks like a real, like, actual dead person that is just somehow (laughs) blinking and, like, (laughs) breathing. And it's, like, so, like, upsetting. And And they have this, like, shrine to their mother's bones or whatever. Yeah. And it's, like, then she runs runs to the gas station and she gets to the gas station. And there's the guy there that they saw earlier. He's, like, oh, don't worry. She's, like, hysterical. She's, like, please, you need to call the police. And he's, like... Don't worry, I'll get help. You wait right here. <laughs> and, like, it and then comes back with a rope and burlap bag to be well, like, now, Missy, if you just uh, don't give us any trouble, it won't be no problem. Yeah, well, the horrifying moment is she's sitting there and then she turns and looks and there's meat roasting in like this. And you can totally tell that like, like oven that, that like one of the things on the hook in the fucking barbecue pit is just like a human torso. Yeah. And she's just staring and slowly, slowly it starts to like she starts to realize it. And like the calm on her face completely disappears. And then the guy shows back up with the burlap sack and the rope and he just completely unceremoniously walks in with them. And he's like, now, come on. (laughs) Now, to me, like in my in my most evil uh, soul, like this to me is like the the Sawyer family is like the genuinely funny part of the movie. Yes. No, they are. I love I love Pa Sawyer cook, cook Sawyer so, so much. And he's so funny in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. But truly he goes full dad gummit. Yeah. (laughs) He goes full like. I love when he's complaining about how uh, regulation and taxes uh, stifle an honest trade, which is his his his, uh, murdering, uh, murdering uh, young people and feeding it to Texans as chili slop. (laughs) But the most evil 
scene in the movie is when uh, Pa Sawyer drives her back to the Sawyer house in a burlap bag and just keeps poking her with a broom handle. <laughs> yes. It's so unnecessary and cruel. He just keeps cruel. stabbing her with this broom handle and laughing. Yes. It's like just for fun, oh. just because he fucking is a psycho. <laughs> it's like so crazy. And like you see his like horrible teeth and it's like shot from below and you see like the lights as he passes like driving like sort of illuminate his horrible his horrible scarecrow face and he keeps going like and she's just whimpering and he's just going stop why are you escaping or whatever and he just keeps hitting her with this broom <laughs> yes. it's all oh god it's so evil and then of course as they pull up to the house the hitchhiker is right there walking home because of course he is related to these psychos I mean yes. how, how else could anything else be the case yeah and then they, and then they just prepare Sally for a nice Sawyer family dinner that this is the best part of the movie and this is truly the most memorable memorable scene in the movie one of the most memorable scenes in any movie because this is where it really because if you see this scene you will not forget it it's it's this is like where it truly elevates the movie from a level of like an amazing horror film to like a transcendently good like to in my opinion like maybe the best movie ever made because like the horror on her face as the family is like cackling and like laughing at her and she's strapped to this chair and the camera suddenly switches to a lens that is i would i could only describe it as like uncomfortably like insanely close to her face to her the shots of her eyes where you can see the blood vessels in her eyes her eye looks like an alien planet it, it truly is like so yes, horrifying yes. and it's just this montage of her screaming as it keeps cutting to different angles on her face and everything is completely gone like she is even if she escapes she's insane because th yeah. there's nothing left in her head but screams like there's nothing left in her but screaming that is a feeling that the movie kindles in the viewer like of just having every ounce of your soul just wrenched out of your body by just absolute horror and madness. Yeah. That like, there are no words left. There is no meaning left in reality other than like the, the meaning of like, of like the, the bucket that they put under you to collect the blood after they smash your head open. Yeah. When the grandpa, the, <laughs> the grandpa scene is, they, they cut her finger yeah. and, and give it to the grandpa as a little appetizer. And he just, the scene where he's just like, this corpse is sucking on her finger it's so upsetting and sexual and like it's like it's literally like the grandpa can't move at all except blinking ex unless he gets like a little bit of blood and then he can like kind of move his arms a little more <laughs> like move his mouth he really is like a vampire and they, they get the idea to let grandpa uh, be the one to slaughter uh, Sally and they like bring her over and they keep trying to put a hammer in his hand as he's like can, can, can't they keep talking about how he killed 60 ca 60 cows in under five minutes with a sledgehammer <laughs> yes. and they're like and the way like the the the, the cooks Pa Sawyer keeps trying to cajole Sally by being like don't you worry it won't hurt nothing it all takes him is one lick and that's he put them steers down and then, he, and then he keeps telling her he's like he's like now just cause, you know now they're all we all got to do things we don't want to do but we still got to do him and like talking about it like he's talking so, like he's talking to a seven-year-old who doesn't want to yes. eat vegetables <laughs> it's like crazy but it's, it's back to like you know like uh, look it's just it's just my job yeah <laughs> like but it, it's it's their attempt to get the grandfather in on the action that that gives sally like a like a moment's respite she manages to wrestle herself free from the uh the 
the slaughter bucket and then just for the second time in the movie run straight through a window yeah and also when um the grandpa is trying to hit her with the hammer um that's how we picture uh jimmy carter uh doing those habitat for humanity houses <laughs> like hammering a nail into the side of those well actually houses. um sp- uh, speaking of political figures uh, throughout the entire movie uh franklin in the beginning of the movie where frank the first scene in the movie that we see of like the not desecrated corpse is the sort of scooby-doo gang and i think the parallels between the young people in this movie and scooby-doo are is, got to yeah. be intentional yes, absolutely. They, they roll around in a van and like franklin is the dog basically like he's yes. scooby <laughs> he's the Scooby-Doo. first scene in the movie is them like wheeling him out of the van and then like letting him go to the side of the road to take a piss on the side of the road and then as like as he's peeing a truck driver just whips a fucking can at him hits him in the head and, <laughs> and then he's he rolls like, down the hill. like rolls yeah. down the hill falls down <laughs> i was thinking of that and of course how franklin ends up with leatherface that like you know in the context of a, a totally not real fantasy movie that uh this is what should happen to greg abbott yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I would like to do a remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre starring Greg yes, Abbott. And and we're going to use br- the most groundbreaking special effects you've ever seen. <laughs> it's going to look absolutely. It's going to look real. It's it's really no gonna... CGI here, folks. <laughs> uh, I simply must state once again in Minecraft in a video game for the purposes yes. of comedy amusement parody, in your mind only. Parody, parody, parody. parody. <laughs> but uh, before we get to the the very last scene. I said that like the, the the murder victims in this movie, I think, have to have been at least in some way borrowed from Scooby Doo, or that he was trying to make some sort of psychic resonance in the minds of the viewers of this like happy van full of cool, fun young people, you know, go to yeah. investigate a mystery at a weird old house. Yeah, because it's literally two guys, two girls, and Franklin, <laughs> and that's it's the Scooby <laughs> yes. Gang. Yeah. I also think that in the Sawyer household and the interplay between the the Sawyer family members, the between the hitchhiker Leatherface and Pa Sawyer, they totally remind me of this Three Stooges. Yes, absolutely. And like individually we see them and they're like horrific and <laughs> disgusting but together they're capering it's like i kept expecting them all to try to go through the same door at the same time and just get yes. caught which i think might actually happen in texas chainsaw massacre too at some yeah. point <laughs> <laughs> but like and, and the absolute depravity of it and like mixed with their kind of slapstick capering makes yeah. it it's just adds another level of how utterly disturbing and horrifying this movie is uh, last thing I'll say though, they have their mom's bones upstairs, but like in the dinner table scene, they put makeup on Leatherface's skin mask and like sort of uh, they 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 pl- they place Leatherface in the role of like uh, uh, female gendered domestic labor. Yes, they make him like the mother figure. He's this hulking man who's like this. You know, he's like, like seven beast. feet tall. He's <laughs> but like. But he cowers and like, uh, you know, sort of like uh, he cowers in front of both his brother and father. Like they, they boss him around and beat him up. Yeah, it's it, and in to, in two, they're really they give like Leatherface a transgender kind of arc in two, which is really crazy. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and you see like the seeds of that here. And yeah, it's it's very funny. But like, yeah, they never really explain why the. It's it's just there. You have to kind of put it to piece it together with context clues. So like the first time you see this movie, you're going to be like, why does Leatherface have blush on? Why does he have like <laughs> the worst makeup and, of and, all time? And, on and, his- and, he, and like previously he had like the um, the slaughterhouse apron on. Uh, but yeah. in, the, in the dinner scene, he has the kind of like uh, 50s homemaker uh, kitchen apron on. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. She jumps out the window and... It's daytime out. 
and she runs toward the street. And Leatherface, we have the reprise, the great, the reprise of Leatherface chasing her with the chainsaw in front of the house. But she makes it to the highway and there's a semi truck that she manages to flag down. And this After guy, it runs over the hitchhiker. Yes, it runs over the hitchhiker. <laughs> and the guy in the like semi truck is like this big, this poor guy just has no clue what he just stumbled into. And he does he he gets out of the truck, right? Yeah. We, yeah. we, we never see what happens to him. We don't see him die, but the last, last we see of him, he's just running away. Yeah, he kind of, like, so that is closed off to her as an escape option because Leatherface is now chasing her and this guy, like, separately, but, like, mostly her. And she, coming the other direction, a pickup truck passes, and she jumps in the back seat, and it drives away. Or not in the back seat, in the, like... In the bed, the truck, truck, bed. Truck, yeah. truck bed, yeah. And it's the greatest, like, two shots of, like, a movie ending ever is, like, her in the truck bed screaming and her screams slowly turn to, like, the most most horrifying laugh you've ever heard. And she's drenched in blood, just covered in blood. And just, like, as the sun is, like, just coming up. And then it cuts back to Leatherface, who is doing who's doing a little dance. <laughs> he's just, he does a dance and he's just literally swinging his chainsaw around like in, in the, like the morning sunlight. So he's like, he's almost yeah. like he, he's obscured by like a darkness and it's just this, like this figure um, sort of pirouetting and spinning with his chainsaw, like, you know, spewing exhaust and, and guttering to itself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's just, the only sound that you hear is just the chainsaw. It's completely drowned out everything else as the pickup truck, disappears in the very far background completely blurry because it's shot with such like a like long lens that only Leatherface is in focus and he's just like you know dancing twirling around with the chainsaw and then it just cuts to black and that's the end of the movie yeah it it reminds me of the last line of uh, Blood Meridian which is like they say the judge is dancing like he is dancing still still. he is dancing still Um, (laughs) the thing I wanted to bring up about the, the last scene of the movie and again like Similar to Night of Living Dead, like the the, la- the final two shots of this movie. I mean, the, like, the, I mean the, the thirty minutes leading up to it, but the, to the, that final image is just like life, humanity gone, <laughs> madness, yes. madness has been induced, like meaning obliterated, gone. Chaos done. reigns. Chaos, Chaos reigns. <laughs> the thing I wanted to bring up is uh, the semi truck that pancakes hitchhiker <laughs> and. Uh, seems to like sort of in, the Deus Ex Machina that kind of intervenes to 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 save the final girl. Do you remember the name of the truck? The name on the side of the door, Hessa. Oh my God, I don't. Okay, the name of the truck. It's it's written on the the the, the cab door. Is Black Mariah. This is very significant. I mean, like this has to be intentional on part of the filmmaker. Black Mariah was the name of Thomas Edison's first ever in the world film studio. In, oh in, in New Jersey, but Black Mariah was the name of like the studio on which in 1893, the very first motion pictures were ever filmed. Oh my God. This, so this, this movie's this, unreal. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And like this to me is like the, the, the Deus Ex Machina is film itself to kind of like preserve that one girl's life, you know? Yeah. Like the, it's like the one, I, I won't say hope, 
but like the, the one thing that like prevails over total annihilation. Yeah. And that like the, the interjection of like uh, the film itself is sort of like reminding you that it's a movie, but not really. And I like, but to me, like it's, it's not so much about that, but it is about heralding. As I think I said at the beginning, I think he is kind of trying to kill movies <laughs> themselves yes. with this movie. Like the power of this movie is so intense that it, like it, it's a madness rune on the entirety yeah. <laughs> yeah. of film as a whole. And it's almost like this film shouldn't have been made. Yes. Because like if, if this is what film has been made, led to, like it's dug its own grave and it is now desecrating it like the Sawyer family. Yes, exactly. It's because and literally the first thing that you see is like a, a body desecrated and impaled on like a on like a gravestone. And it looks like this is something this is a question I have. Do you think the body do you think the gravestone at the beginning is going into that body's asshole and like because it looks kind of like it's that. like an yeah it's like an art pro i mean we, we know we know the sawyer family and their dedication to crafts shall we say yeah. so yeah like it's it's a it's a, it's a body the, like the, the corpse that's been like yeah like propped up and sort of artfully arranged on this like uh obelisk kind of yeah and there's a, well there's an obelisk right behind it and i think the inclusion of like the obelisk and the sun once again goes back to this like repeated motif in this movie of uh, astrology and horoscopes because you yes. remember like they have a long conversation yes, they have about, a book of horoscopes they have the american book of horoscopes and of course that like you know their horoscope for that day is like you will you will found yourself in a strange circumstance that may not be too fun <laughs> yes and they're like uh-oh and i think the i think the joke here is like the idea of like oh like these um celestial bodies light years away can like affect our behavior it's like the joke is like yeah that is true and it leads us to like depravity and murder but i think like the the sicker joke is that like the idea that these celestial bodies would affect our behavior is madness because like they don't care about our behavior or our life and death at all yeah just they just stare down at us and like into like pitiless witness of just like yeah as i said our absolute madness and depravity yeah we're just dancing we're just dancing they're not even looking <laughs> like it's, yeah it's really yeah it's amazing I think that like there's right before the like the 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 thirty minute the finale of Shrieking starts. I think at one point Franklin talks to Sally about like he's like you don't believe in all that horoscope stuff, do you? All that stuff about Saturn and retrograde, and Sally sort of like already defeated by her annoying brother and just like the frustration of the day, not even knowing that her friends are already dead, just sort of resignedly says, "I guess everything means something." Yeah. And I think like the, the sick joke in this movie is that it's all about how that's completely not true. Nothing yeah. means anything. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. It like, really shit doesn't mean anything. Shit just happens. And it's just like, the, the, yeah, like life, life and meaning are just obliterated by yeah, depravity and madness. I, I, can we talk really briefly about the house that they're going to stay in too? Yeah. Oh my God. The, the writhing mass of daddy long legs is one, that's of, like one of the, the most, most, that's the most disgusting shot in the entire movie. Yeah. It's really upsetting. It's really upsetting because like, also, like that house, there's no furniture in it. It's completely decrepit. And Franklin's like, "Wait till y'all see this house. This is gonna, this is gonna be the best weekend ever." And they all get there, and they're kind of like, you know, what the fuck? Why do we <laughs> like, listen to this annoying asshole again? Yeah. <laughs> Why do we bring him with us? Yeah, there. And there's also this through line of like um, Franklin thinking they belong erroneously because like he keeps telling people like. Oh yeah, that's our grandparents' house. The the old like uh something place, you know, that we're going we're going to stay there. That's our like that's our uncle's house or something. And um the guy at the gas station's like, "Oh, wow. Haha, <laughs> that's cool." And is like it's truly like uh 
you know, they're not, they don't belong there. They might be from Texas. They might be from, they might even have like an uncle who used to live in that house. He's They're clearly, city kids. Yeah, They're city kids, yeah. Yeah, no one lives there anymore, obviously. And they just don't belong in this like evil, depraved backwater hell planet that they accidentally, this hell dimension that they traverse into. And, you know, this house is like, the idea that this house will protect them or is like a house in any conventional way. It's like more like, you know, it's, it's like, it's a mausoleum. It's, it's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah, like the, the daddy long legs, all of the sort of like ritualistically arranged, like animal bones and shit like that. There's such a sense of just like the, the obscenity of nature in this movie as Werner Herzog might describe it. Like, you know, yeah. like the, the overwhelming and collective murder of nature. Yes. That like, that, that, that like nature and the earth itself and like all the structures and cars and people in it are just shit. There's just like, everything is just disgusting and like, and soiled in such a profound way. Yeah. Everything is built on a thin ice sheet over the deepest, darkest, coldest lake in existence. And like one, if there's enough cracks, it's all just going to fucking fall <laughs> yeah. through. I mean, that is the lesson of both of these movies is like, there's only one, we, there's, sorry, there's no multiverse. There's only one universe and it's the hell universe. And there's yes. only one country and it's called the Fourth Reich, America. Yes. <laughs> there's no escape for any of us. And hey, you better, so you know what? Why don't you just put some makeup on and dance around? Yeah. <laughs> Take Leatherface's example. <laughs> just make yourself a skin mask. Yeah. I don't want to end without talking about a few other Toby Hooper movies for further yes. investigation. I mean, he's one of the, I mean, him and Romero were like, you know, two, two of the gods of American horror. Hooper is seriously underrated. Like Hooper seriously, is so un seriously I mean, underrated. Everyone's seen Poltergeist. Cause like that's the movie yeah. everyone saw when they were a kid and scared the shit out of them. Poltergeist mm -hmm. still very good, very effective horror movie. I love Poltergeist, but I really like some of Toby Hooper's other movies a Life lot better. Force. Life Force. <laughs> Life Force. Life people. Force. Life Folks, Force. Folks, a little movie called Life Force. <laughs> about People, horny alien vampires which inaugurate another apocalypse one of the horniest and weirdest movies ever made yeah transgender themes abound it's life force patrick stewart is in it he's you know steve rails back yes it's it's beautiful it's like sort of sci-fi horror but yeah it, it is it's strangely beautiful a, a very horny movie <laughs> yes incredibly i would also horny. highly recommend uh the fun house as well another yes, classic the fun house is amazing it's that, that's just like yeah also and uh the mangler or wait was that yeah he did the mangler i haven't seen the mangler that, that was oh, salem's Romero. lot Salem's also. Lot. Salem's Lot is there's some like James Mason is very good in it, but Salem's Lot was is a made for TV series. It's like if yeah. you like Stephen King and those like Mick Garris like the Stand uh, miniseries, then Salem's Lot is an earlier version of that. It's very faithful to the book. There's some really good stuff in it, but to me like Salem's Lot, it's it's you know it's like it's made for TV. It's kind of it's not as horrifying as his other stuff. Yes, but the Fun House is just fun. I mean that's a, like some kids go to a carnival and get trapped in the Spook House with a, with yeah. a creature. Like it's a blast. With, yeah, it's fun house is a lot of fun, but yeah, Toby Hooper, super, super, super underrated horror director. Yes, Eaten Alive, also, which is about um, 
a Louisiana bog. Um, Eaten Alive, if you watch it, you're like, how is this not a gay man? Because this is basically, it's almost, there's a John Waters Ian, like, bent to Eaten Alive, where, like, his love of grotesques. Yes, it's like the wigs that he picks are like, this is, if this is a straight man, he has, like, incredible taste in wigs for a straight man <laughs> like it's it's unbelievable and like eating alive is about um a guy who runs a bed and breakfast in the louisiana swamp and he has like a swamp like bog out in the back that he keeps um an alligator in not a crocodile um or no a uh, a crocodile, crocodile not, not, an alligator. Alli- not yes. an alligator yeah an egyptian giant man-eating crocodile and he like slowly throughout the film feeds like just it's new guests come and they're all like characters straight out of a john waters movie and they all get fed to this alligator (laughs) it's really incredible crocodile yeah crocodile crocodile (laughs) yeah and like even if toby hooper had never done another movie other than texas chainsaw massacre he would have to be one of the goats because like i said this movie base this movie kills art this movie kills like cinema as 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 a genre like it just yeah it puts it to bed nothing more need be said after this yes which i think is why he picked the correct route with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is yeah. just making it the goofiest, just a complete goofball fest. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is so much fun. It's so good. It's like, cause it, it's a, everything that made the first movie great, but it's just like, you know, uh, let, let's have some fun with it. <laughs> let's yeah, have some fun with it. Now a silly one. It's like when it, you're taking pictures got a, with the family. <laughs> it's got, it's got, yeah. <laughs> it's now got a, a silly one. It's got an amazing soundtrack featuring um, Oingo Boingo and yes. Tim Book 3. The No One Lives Rather scene at the beginning of the movie is so fucking fun. There's a scene where um, Leatherface uses the chainsaw to dry hump a woman over yep. her pant, over her shorts. <laughs> There's a scene where... Um, these kids are driving through Texas shooting road signs and Leatherface attacks them with a corpse. The the dance from the end of the first movie, which... Yes, is, is, is reappropriated to yes, quite the most nice horrifying, effect. Yeah, the most horrifying thing like imaginable becomes like a silly, like a Fortnite dance that, <laughs> that <Yeah>. Leatherface <laughs> does constantly throughout the, throughout the movie. It's just spoofs and goofs and like the, 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 the relationship among the Sawyer family is like even more, it's way more generous with the Sawyers. You get so much yes. of Jim Sido as the cook and then I, I simply must stress again Bill Mosley as Chop Top is one of the most revolting and hilarious characters yes. in yes. horror movie history. He his head is like replaced by like a metal plate. A metal plate. Yeah. And he has this like this, this like stringy hair wire hanger. Like, yeah. yeah. He has again his taste in wigs is like <laughs> impeccable because this is like the worst wig imaginable and it's so and perfect like when we first see when we first see chop top he's wearing like hippie love child uh like those little sun like john lennon sunglasses yes. and he's burning the end of a coat hanger until it gets extra hot and then uses it to like like scratch the scabs on his head around his yes. metal plate Ugh. absolutely disgusting and like I said, just Bill Mosley's performance is so over the top and hilarious and disgusting. It has to be seen to be believed. Yes, and Dennis Dennis Hopper oh, yeah. going complete psycho mode. There's a scene where he goes to a chainsaw store. <laughs> yep. It's like it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger in commando putting the uh the bullet belts on and yeah, shit. Yeah, just, and just like, tooling up before there's yes. assaults on the uh yeah, <laughs> he gets like on the four compound. Different- 
he fills up his inventory, his weapon wheel. <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that does it for the first two entries of uh, Ghoul V Scream Set Horror Movie Spectacular. Yeah. And, and, and truly, these two movies are not optional. Yes, these are mandatory viewing. And, and I don't want any more complaints about how we're picking like obscure or no one ever seen before movies. Because if you, if you haven't seen these two movies by now, then that's on you. That's on you. We're helping you. You should be thanking us. And use this as an excuse. Yes, absolutely. Yes. All right. I have to until until uh, next time, I'll uh, scream you later or uh, ghoul yes. you at a future date for our next entry in Ghoul Scream Set Horror Movie Horrortober Spectacular. Good evening and good night. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit stop.